Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Hey, Bob. It's, it's Alexis. How are you? Good. Yourself? Um, no, we're 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 doing good. We uh we've been um, you know, on this story for a while now, and and uh, this is our last day here. We've been driving up and down Atlanta and and uh, Orlando and everything, and um, trying to talk to as many people as possible. So, yeah, yep, and um, you know, so. You know, we've talked to everyone from like defense and prosecutors and everything, and you know, I'm really excited to finally talk to you and 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 hear from you. Uh, if you could just walk me through what actually happened that night. I believe that they argued, and he picked up a gun and he shot her. Not a single person that knows my family thinks that he did this. He was a very smart person, but the other side was the nasty side. This is not a murder. This is the opposite of a murder scene. If this was some tragic accident, wouldn't he have tried to look for a pulse? There is not physical evidence, and you have a trail of people who didn't do their goddamn job. There's a verdict in the murder trial of Isleworth millionaire Bob Ward. Do you think this was an accident or a murder? I, I really can't say. From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion, a nine-part podcast that takes a deep dive into the story of a family torn apart. A trial turned into a media spectacle and investigates the mystery. 
what really happened to Diane Ward. Bob Ward resides at the Blackwater River Correctional Facility in Milton, Florida. He is serving out the remainder of a 30-year sentence. In the eyes of the state of Florida, Bob is a murderer who, despite a successful appeal, has been convicted twice in a court of law. In the eyes of his family, Bob is an innocent man, one who may spend the rest of his life behind bars. We've followed this case for a long time now and spoken with dozens of people on both sides, friends, attorneys, experts, and more. We've also gone through hundreds of trial transcripts and documents. While we understand the arguments for Bob's guilt, we also understand why a lot of people have serious doubts about this case. Billy and I have been hoping for the opportunity to speak with Bob Ward since our investigation started. Our attempts were hindered by restrictions at the prison. But in the spring of 2021, we unexpectedly received a call. Thank you for using Global Telling. Unfortunately, the audio quality from Bob's prison phone is really bad. At times, it's hard to make out what he's saying. So we'll fill in the blanks for you during some of these spots where it's very difficult to hear. This will be the first time since his conviction that he has spoken publicly about what happened the night Diane died. Bob says that when he returned home in the early evening, Diane asked him to open a bottle of wines, meaning more than one. Around 6 p.m., he went out to the patio and started drinking martinis. Then at some point, he fell asleep. Woke up later, went upstairs, walked to the master bedroom, walked over to the, uh, my side of the bed, to the nightstand. It was dark, but there was a lamp on in the master bath, and I can still see it. Around 7.15 p.m., Bob says he woke up on the patio, then went upstairs to the master bedroom. The lights were off, but a light coming from the master bath allowed him to see. That's when he sensed that Diane was also in the room. I realized that uh, Diane was behind me and I turned around and she had a gun. It was pointed at me, but I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just grabbed her arm and pushed it back. When I pushed it back, she had her finger on the trigger and the gun went off. When he realized that Diane was pointing the gun at him, Bob says he grabbed his wife's arm and pushed it back. Her finger was on the trigger, and the gun went off. So I called 411 first because I was in a panic. Got switched over to 911. She said, What's your emergency? So I just shot my wife. That's, I think, really what got it going the wrong way. Bob says that he accidentally misdialed 411 before being transferred to 911. For those who don't know, 411 was a commonly used number for information years ago. That's when Bob uttered the words, I just shot my wife. They said, was it an accident? I said, of course it was an accident, but the bottom line was, I didn't know what the hell she was trying to do. She herself or she made. Uh, she was very angry with me because so 
Bob says he didn't know if Diane was intending to shoot him or herself, but he does recall that Diane was very angry with him over what was going on with their business. You said that you, you were uh, drinking martinis outside and she was drinking red wine. Were you talking with each other? No, I had fallen asleep, so she probably came out to say goodnight. How many did you have? Who knows? I was probably passed out, but I'm sure I must have because at some point I got wine in the back of my shirt. She tripped coming out the door. I must have walked out and tripped her bad and threw it at me in my back or whatever, but I didn't even know she even told it was there. I had no idea I had wine on my shirt until I got to the sheriff's office. Bob thinks Diane threw wine at him after he passed out and says he didn't know there were stains on his shirt until he was at the police station that night. Do you think Diane might have said something to you while you were passed out and she, she didn't, you didn't answer so she threw the wine at you? I don't know. I don't recall her saying a word to me. I don't right. recall her coming out there. Okay, so Bob, you say that when you turned around, Diane had the gun in her hands pointed at you. So did she actually say anything? Didn't say a word. Didn't, didn't say a word. I just sensed her behind me. So, question for you. I was wondering, where did you normally keep the gun? The gun was, was in my nightstand, in a case. She knew where it was, and she probably realized that I'll be coming up shortly, so she, she got it. We were both under a lot of pressure, and, and you know, she was, I think, just, I don't know, just probably snapped that thing. Got it. The gun was in the nightstand, and Bob says Diane knew where it was and had grabbed it before he came upstairs. So as far as the gun getting into Diane's hands, did she have it already, or did she go and grab it when she went into the room? She, she must have gotten the gun earlier because she sure as heck would walk around me or over the nightstand and get a gun out. She you know, would be standing there. Was she holding the gun with one hand or two hands? So she had the gun with two hands, then you you tried to, to wrestle the gun away from her, and I'm trying to figure out how the gun was pointed at her. Was the gun pointed? It's not pointed right at me. She just, she just got it kind of, kind of pointed up. I had my hands right below her on her arms. I pushed it back, I just, I pushed her back with it, and the, and the gun went up and it shot her in the face. So the gun was, was kind of upside down then? Yes, exactly. Was her head facing downward, or was it looking at you? I really couldn't see where her head was facing. I was focused on the gun getting it out of my face. Bob, so when I was talking to Robin... As a reminder, Robin was the prosecutor in the first trial. She suggested that there may have been time for you to wash your hands um, the night of the incident. Did that occur? No, did not occur. No, I didn't wash my hands. I wanted to ask you, um, so obviously a big thing that people talk about is just your demeanor that night. Some people can't get past it. How can you best explain to people what you were going through that night and why maybe your demeanor may have been off-putting to certain people? Well, I'm obviously drunk. I just said I just shot my wife. I didn't know if I shot her or she shot herself. I didn't, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was pretty intoxicated. Bob was never given a breathalyzer or blood test that night, so we have no way to verify how much alcohol was actually in his system or what role it may have played. 
Bob, beyond the intoxication though, what about the 911 call specifically? A lot of people say you don't say that it's an accident until the 911 dispatcher asks you. Well, I'm in shock. This happened so quickly. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it was you know, a five minute scene leading, leading up to it where somebody even in my situation might know what the heck was going on. I mean, that's, I don't know how else, how else to explain it. And then, Bob, you had very little blood on you. And, you know, the prosecution may have speculated that if Diane gets shot, you would maybe run to her and, like, hold her and, and, and hug her and that you should have more blood on you. Let me tell you, when that gun went off, the very next second was you hear her falling on the floor. Boom. On the floor. That wound and her face is spurting blood everywhere. What he's saying is disturbing, but it's important. After being shot in the face, Diane had fallen to the floor instantly, and the bullet wound began bleeding everywhere. My first thing to do was I picked the phone up immediately because I knew she needed help. What was I going to do was, was, was get down there and hug her and say, sweetie, are you okay? And hang on and whatever. I mean, I'd be wasting time. I, I dialed the phone first. The woman had been shot in the face. What the hell else would anybody with any kind of sense do, even if you're drunk? Was on the phone and call for help? Bob says that his first instinct was to call for help, not to try to give aid to Diane, because he felt like that would be wasting precious time. A couple minutes later, I came and she said, how is she? And I said, she's dead. And I got you some work she's done. What they told me then was, don't get off the phone. Stay on the phone with us. So I, I really couldn't go back, and I said, go stand out in front and wait for the police to That's what they told me to do. He says he followed the direction of the 911 operator, and waited in the front yard for the police to show up. Bob, the other thing that they talk about is the the trigger pull and the 12 pounds of pressure needed to pull the trigger. And saying that, okay, let's talk through that then. To refresh your memory, the prosecution argued that Diane wouldn't have had the leverage to pull the trigger of the gun based on the distance and the amount of pressure required. Listen, the trigger pull on it was 10.5 pounds. That's, that's, that's what I'm telling you. You get the model number, you call Smith and, you call Smith and Wesson and ask them, what is trigger pull on a Smith and Wesson pistol? PD340, that's Police Department 340 pistol. And they will tell you the trigger pull is 10.5 pounds. They'll do anything to get their conviction. That's a bunch of garbage. Bob is adamant that the trigger pull for his model pistol is 10.5 pounds and that prosecutors claim that it's higher is just a bunch of garbage. He suggested we call Smith & Wesson to verify this, so we did. And it turns out he's correct. They told us the trigger pull was 10 pounds, even less than 10.5, not 12. Ken Lewis was also saying that Diane was not strong enough to pull the trigger. Well, I think Diane was very strong. She was very healthy. She could have pulled the trigger on that gun up in. Okay. Uh, another thing that came out in the, in the press was when Diane Callahan said a story about how how you had pulled a gun on her at, at one point. Um, what what exactly happened there? That's not true. And did, did you uh, get the police report? No. Well, there's a police report on that. Uh, it doesn't mention a thing about a gun. It mentions it just a fight with bedpost. I wouldn't marry her. And uh, she had it, 
According to Bob, he never intended to marry Diane Callahan, and that's what triggered this incident between them. He references the police report, but as a reminder, we checked everywhere and found no evidence that a police report ever existed. And then she had also said that she went to uh, uh, the, uh, the emergency room because she, she had bruises on her. Yeah, uh, she, she, she broke off the four pillars of bed and started swinging them. So I broke off the other pillars to stop the block or from hitting me with the damn thing. And, uh, you know, she got raised in a jaw or something, but there wasn't a gun involved. Recalling this bedpost incident that we described to you in episode three, both Diane Callahan and Bob each claim that the other person struck first. Bob, why do you think Diane Callahan came forward and, and said all of this stuff? What are her motives in this? Their motives, just to, just to get the media uh, attention, probably. He believes Diane Callahan told her story to the press because she wanted the media attention. Bob, do, do you regret? No. Do you regret not telling your story? Not like the the, the events that you told us. It doesn't seem like the, those were brought out in court. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, both attorneys said don't take the stand, but that's, that was the biggest mistake made. I should have been able to take the stand and talk about it. So look the jury in the eye and tell them what was going on, but they said don't take the stand, and that was a mistake. So, Bob, what exactly is the status of your appeal, and what are your expectations for the future? I may spend the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do. I don't have any money, like a hundred dollars a month. Bob says his sister-in-law, Paula, sends him $100 a month to make phone calls. But other than that, he doesn't have any money. And he may spend the rest of his life in prison. It's done. I lost everything because the tennis of the entireties went away. You understand how that works, right? Yes. Okay, that's, that, that's the key to it. As soon as she died, I lost everything. Everything. And the kids lost the parents. Most of them, I think. So here, Bob is saying he lost everything, and his kids lost their inheritance after Diane died because of Florida's tenants of the entirety's laws. I think that Diane was, had been suicidal for some time. She had been happy for a long time about something. I don't know. Hey, Bob, have you have you had a chance to grieve Diane yet? I still grieve her. I mean, it's, 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 been, it's been bad. I mean, think about her all the time. I have no reason. I think about her all the time. I had no reason to kill my wife. We had a great family. Why would I want to screw that up? Okay. Well, Bob, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, Bob, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your interest. And, uh, you know, it just feels good to talk about it since I've never talked about it this much depth before. And I love my girls. We all love Diane so much. We were a very, very tight family. And we had a lot of fun together. We really did. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, folks. After the break, Alexis and I break down our conversation with Bob. We talked to so many people, but now we finally talked to him, and I thought we'd get some clarity, but I just have more questions. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing that jumped out at me was the his description of what the gun was and where the gun was. Like he's saying she has it in both hands. He pushes it up and they're struggling with it, and then the gun gets upside down. And the gun is upside down facing her, and then it goes off. And we know that the bullet entered right over here. Since you can't see it, at this point, I'm moving my arms to approximate the motion that Diane's hands would have made, based on Bob's description that the gun was upside down. The barrel of the gun is within inches of my face. That's Bob's story. That's a scenario that we had never heard from anybody before. And that seems to contradict what a lot of the experts were saying, how far away the gun was from her face when it went off. And he's saying when the gun was pointed this way is when it went off and then she was struck. So the gun was upside down like that. Mm -hmm. And um, which is a, it's an odd, I mean, it's hard even for me to do that. Mm -hmm. So the distance of the gun, which is so much that we've been talking about with these experts and everything about how far was the gun. I mean, with me, I mean, I've got long arms. I think something we have to keep remembering is that, you know, in an earlier part of the call, he mentions his intoxic level of intoxication. So how well is he actually remembering the beat by beat unfolding of this event? And if that is what happened, so that sort of contradicts a lot of what we heard throughout the course of our investigation. So if that is what happened, it could mean one of two things. It's either Bob is misremembering what happened that night or the testing that was done to determine how far the gun was away from Diane when it went off is wrong. But the idea that he, well, let's run through the, how he said the night progressed. So he says that he was drinking martinis on the patio and then there wasn't even talking with Diane. He, you know, so there was no argument. The thing is, everything that Bob just told us goes against all the other stories that we've heard from both the defense and the prosecution. There was a fight, she throws a wine at him, and then the fight escalates into the bedroom, and then that's where the gun comes out. But he's saying no fight. He's saying, he was just in the bedroom alone, turns around, and that his wife, who he loves so much, is pointing a gun at him. And he doesn't know what Diane was going to do. He's inferring here that perhaps Diane, out of frustration and resentment and fear and stress and depression, was going to kill Bob. Yeah, and she had already had the gun too, which is another thing that, that the first time that we're hearing that is that he walked into the room and again, he said he was intoxicated, but when he walked into the room, there was nobody in the room. He turns his back to the front of the room to empty out his pockets, turns around, and Diane's right there. If the gun was always in the nightstand, which is where he is standing over, she would have had to have gotten the gun beforehand and been waiting for him someplace else, waiting for him to walk into the room and then walked up behind him. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what he's saying, that's his version of events. It's hard to know the choreography of what happened that night based on a broken wine glass and a stain, a wine stain on a shirt and a wine stain on a bed. It's like we're, we're writing a narrative for what could have happened. And the fact is, is that no one can really know. And it seems that Bob doesn't even really know. And, you know, the idea that Bob had said to us another thing on this call is that he wishes they would have put him on the stand, but I don't know if it could have actually gotten better because 
his story is just so different from, from everybody else's story. And I'm sure the defense attorneys, I mean, just based on what we heard from him here, it is not clear and he's not sure what happened because some of the things he's saying directly contradicts evidence. So I bet you the defense was like, no way, they're gonna, they're gonna get you on anything you say because you're not sure. Yeah. What'd you think of his demeanor on this call versus the 911 call? I thought it sounded like the same guy. And it could be another reason why his attorneys didn't want to put him on the stand. Because if he can't get to a place where a juror can see that he's grieving or mourning or sad, they might make a snap judgment. You know, I think if you're looking at beyond a reasonable doubt, if you take the, the phone call away, I think the phone call is really what gets him. Th that was really the linchpin of the case. But here's the thing, we just talked to him and he sounds the same. That's sort of his disposition and his voice sounds pretty monotone in that way. I don't feel like we have any additional insight after speaking to him as far as where to put that 911 call. So we can't, again, the only people who know what happened in that room are Bob and Diane. And now we're not even sure if Bob really knows anymore. That's exactly right. I am nowhere closer to knowing what exactly happened. And the bottom line is, is that we've got these two daughters whose lives have been completely turned upside down and turned to hell because of that. We've worked on so many cases together and it's always, I can't think of any other ones where it's the family of the victim pointing to the accused and saying, this guy didn't do it. Right, and with the conclusion of both of these trials and Bob being sent to prison, they're saying that's not justice and we're the victims. So where does that leave the state of our court system, the state, is it justice that they were pursuing or is it just the win that they wanted? Before we wrapped things up, Billy and I checked back in with Sarah, Mallory, and Paula one more time. After the break, their unfiltered thoughts on Bob's case and what their lives are like today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. 
The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. Today, Bob Ward is behind bars with a state of his latest appeal, uncertain at best. Barring a successful appeal or clemency in the case, it's likely Bob will remain in prison for the rest of his life. But Bob's family remains stalwart in their support. I've known Bob since their first date. I've been there like through the kids and everything and through the ups and downs, obviously, but they adored each other. They really did. I know he's innocent, I know he's innocent. And justice is for Bob to be free because an innocent man has been in prison for 10 years and it's absolutely horrible. And he's gonna be 73 years old. I can't imagine his life, when I talk to him and everything, I always think like when he gets out, not if he gets out. Because we're never gonna abandon Bob. We'll never abandon him, we will never give up believing that he's innocent, that an innocent man is in prison, that the law got it wrong. They just got it wrong. It was a tragic accident. That's what my sister's death was. As horrible as it is, as much as I miss her, I never ever thought that Bob was guilty. I know Bob isn't guilty, and so do his children, so do his daughters. Did you ever consider the idea that your dad could have killed your mom? Maybe for 30 seconds. And it was literally like I thought about it and then wanted to just like die. (laughs) Because it's, my dad could not have loved, and to this day, anyone more than my mom. And it was the most ridiculous thing to ever think that he would ever do anything to her. How emotionally conflicting is it to support your father as his only family while the state believes that your father killed your mother. Early on, right after mom died, it felt like, even though I was so angry with my mom, it felt like I was betraying her by supporting my dad, even though I knew early on and still know that he didn't do this, it felt like a betrayal to her. 
because everyone was seeing it as I was betraying her and that I wasn't a good person. Now, especially now that I'm older, I don't care what they think. I know at the end of the day that my mom wants me to support my dad and that I'm on the right track and I'm doing the right thing. No matter what happened that night, I know she wasn't in her, in her right mind. I know she wanted in her heart to not be here anymore, to not be present, but I don't think she ever wanted to take my dad from us. And I know she loved my dad. And so by supporting him and doing everything I can, I mean, we've done everything and I will continue to do everything as tired as I am. He's still here and he's a reason to fight. How do you keep fighting for your dad when it's drained all of your resources, both financially and psychologically, emotionally? I'm exhausted. We're all exhausted. The hard part is putting our foot down with our dad and being we, like, we can't do this anymore financially. Like, I want to give him everything, but we've lost our house. Like, we've lost everything. Like, the only thing we have is the farm that my mom got from for me and my sister. And it's the one thing I know my sister and I want to hold on to, to remember our mom. But it's also like, well, if we got rid of the farm, maybe we could fight harder. So what's your life like now? A lot of phone calls from prison <laughs> and emails. I'm very fortunate to be able to still be close to my dad and talk to him every day. I'm even more fortunate to be best friends with my sister and have my husband and laugh every day and have my amazing, beautiful daughter. In February of 2021, Sarah gave birth to her daughter, Diana. She is named after her grandmother. I never thought I wanted kids and now I can't believe I ever thought that for a second and have these amazing animals and live on this farm that sometimes feels like it's falling apart, but most of the time just feels like everything's coming together. And I just feel like I'm doing exactly what I was supposed to do, which I never thought I would feel after losing my mom. I thought my entire life had fallen apart. I never thought that I would have a, have a life after that. It's funny, Mallory had come to the farm last week right before I, my water broke and we were talking and she's like, well, what do you think about mom? Like, what would she think about John and you guys having the baby? And I don't think I would have met John, my husband, if mom was still here. I don't think Mallory and I would be as close as we are if mom were still here. So as horrible and awful and miserable as losing her has been, I would not be living this amazing life if she were still here. So as awful as it's been and as challenging as it's been, I've been able to move forward and thrive, and I hope that she's proud of me. How will you describe your mom to your daughter? I'll tell Diana that her grandma was funny and caring and silly and supportive. She was my biggest cheerleader. 
She had the best sense of humor and the biggest heart. And that I hope to be a fraction of the woman that she was. But I will also tell her about her mental health struggles and that it's okay to have those. It's okay to struggle. I want her to know that it's okay. And I wish that it had been that way before because my mom, she was struggling, but that was only part of who she was. It's the part that took her in the end, but it wasn't every part of her. Mallory, so what are you up to now? How's life now? Great. I am good. I think I've said this before, you know, I am a normal person who something extraordinary happened to. And it sucks, but you gotta just live your life. And I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I, I come out to the farm and I see my sister and I hang out with my friends and I watch The Bachelor on Mondays and I love a good cheese board. And I try to be active. And I'm sure that a lot of people like me to sit around and like cry about losing my mom. But I don't, I, I don't do that. She's been gone a long time and it sucks but you have to tell yourself that she's at peace. That's what she wanted. And that maybe you weren't enough for her to want to stay. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay because she I think that I think that I'm who that she would want me to be, but but who I am now wouldn't be here if she hadn't died, and I know that. I like I'm happy with my life now. I'm happy with who I am. That's what's important. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. If you like Unraveled, make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss our next installment, coming soon with a brand new investigation. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.